Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson. Hello and welcome to this week's Advice and Insights Podcast. This is David Bonson, Managing Partner, Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group of Hightower Advisors. We are blessed to be with you and to kick off here this second podcast of 2018. This week, talking about all things 2018 we want to talk about what kind of looms ahead, what our perspective is for the remainder of the year. We're going to look back on 2017. It wasn't a year that would have been very easy to lose money. Uh, it, one would have had to have been pretty short or pretty long volatility to have come up with some trades that didn't work well last year. Um, and we're going to talk about what that uh, looks like and, and what 2018 looks like from our perspective. So, uh, we look forward to diving in. We always welcome your feedback, comments. We hope after you listen to this, you'll provide a review and say all the things that you disagree with or all the things you want to hear more from us about. But let me, and, and, and also remind you that last week in our initial podcast here on advice and insights uh, titled Mr. Bonson Goes to Washington, I unpacked my trip to Washington, D.C., and a lot of the political landscape and what that kind of looks like for the present investing environment. So I encourage you to, to check that out as well. As, as well. Okay, let me, let me give you quickly a list here of a few things that were not just somewhat forecasted at about 2017 or that you could find out there on the internet if you looked hard enough. But I mean were consensus expectations things that were virtually universal, not literally universal, but virtually universal in the projection that came from kind of Wall Street consensus, if you will. Um, number one, tell me if this sounds familiar. The U.S. dollar will strengthen substantially as the Federal Reserve raises rates and the Trump administration's policies push deficits higher. Well, a year ago, it was virtually impossible to not find someone uh, advocating some version of this thesis. It was not a, a crazy thesis. It wasn't far-fetched. Um, what actually happened? The U.S. dollar suffered its worst performance in 14 years on a trade-weighted basis relative to other currencies, despite interest rates and uh, going higher and very pro-growth fiscal policy. In other words, the premises of the forecast and expectation were quite right. The actual result, completely wrong. Pundit's expectation number two. Does this sound familiar? Even if the Trump administration oversees a rising stock market, the temperament of the new president, his lack of experience in foreign policy, general uncertainty around their um, leadership will create extraordinary volatility. For stock market investors. Okay, fair enough. Seemed to make sense. And, and certainly if the market had gone a lot higher, but had had a volatile ride getting there, you could say that would have played out. Market did go higher. But in actuality, let's talk about the volatility. Equities experienced their lowest levels of all in history, experiencing only a 3% drawdown at the worst moment, matching that of 1995 and tied for the lowest level of downside volatility in market history. Okay, pundit's expectation number three. A rising dollar, weak oil prices, a protectionist landscape from the new Trump administration will render emerging markets highly unattractive, very difficult to invest in. 
what actually happened. It was a weak dollar. Oil prices improved. Commodity price backdrop looked up. And a total lack of protectionist reality from the Trump administration combined with accelerating economic growth worldwide created a plus 35% year for emerging markets. In that case, we're measuring by the MSCI Emerging Market Index. There's plenty of other ways to measure it as well, all in that kind of range of mid to high 30% performance. Pundit's expectation number four, interest rates would move meaningfully higher because of the Federal Reserve tightening monetary policy and the fiscal stimulus that would be coming out of the Trump administration. What actually happened? The 10-year bond yield spent almost the entire year below its starting point of 2.5%, much of the year meaningfully below it, sitting below 2.25% for months and months of 2017, before ending the year back in the 2.4% range, which was still lower than its starting point. And yeah, this is despite three rate hikes from the Federal Reserve, robust GDP growth. I mean, you had two quarters in a row of over 3% real GDP growth. And you did have successful passage of tax reform. Pundit's expectation number five. Technology stocks would suffer under a Trump administration. Amazon has been in his political crosshairs. Facebook took flack for the 2016 election. Net neutrality policies are under attack. What actually happened? Technology was the top performer in the S&P 500, advancing over 36%. The war of words between President Trump and Amazon did not subside. The controversy around Facebook ads actually heated up. And frankly, several other privacy-related controversies and so forth intensified inside the technology sector. And yet, new stratospheric valuations were reached. And then our final pundit's expectation... The protectionist policies of President Trump could cause a trade war, worst case, but hammer multinational companies, best case. Well, the protectionist rhetoric of President Trump never went from bark to bite, as the U.S. did not exit NAFTA, did not label China a currency manipulator, did not cancel free trade pacts with any of the countries he threatened to do so. Well, an obvious takeaway is that the punditry class can be wrong. I mean, look, in a lot of the cases that I've listed here, there's plenty of of justifiable cover, if you will, for why some of these things may have been missed. Some of the mistakes were in the premises themselves. They there were mistaken premises uh, that then, of course, naturally lead to mistaken conclusions. I think that the movement from premises to conclusion the, and, and it was another problem and the inability to see the market as a discounting mechanism. And let me explain that one. Uh, essentially, the market is a, a vehicle to price in today what it believes about the economy and companies and real life economic actors and, and so forth, variables in the future. It's pricing it in now. It's discounting it. The dollar has not historically advanced on the reality of central bank tightening, even though that seems intuitive. It's generally advanced on the anticipation of such. In other words, the market had priced in ahead of time what ended up happening later. So in 2014, 2015, before the Fed began tightening, you saw the dollar rally. Then the actual tightening began, the dollar sold off. In that case, the, the pundits just simply lacked the historical awareness, apparently, 
for how these things have generally gone in the past. Um, you know, there there is a sense in which you have uh, a need to humbly respect the market for what it is. It, it's, uh, it, it is trillions of decisions and variables being priced in in real time from folks operating out of self-interest, from folks operating with real optics. They're not mere cable news watchers. These are sophisticated uh, people. They have skin in the game. They're processing this every second of the day. So the idea that markets would throw up over President Trump's questionable temperament um, and yet, you know, not react favorably around the actual substantive policy movement of deregulation and tax reform, I think is to miss the point as to how markets function. Really, if we look back on the way 2017 went, Trump's temperament, Trump's Twitter, Trump's kind of, I don't know, a lot of things I could say there. I would guess that those things were probably worse than a lot of market actors had anticipated. That there was, there was even more surprise around some of the antics that came out of the White House, and yet markets did what I would have thought markets would do. They looked through that. I mean, I don't think we can do that culturally. I don't think we can do that politically. I don't think we, as a society or as a voting electorate, are going to do that. But it doesn't surprise me at all that markets do it. That markets look through to say what is the profit making ramification of a particular activity and how it gets priced and manifested into an investment, into an asset class, into a market. That interest rates would stay in a tight, moderate range when global yields themselves were anchored to such low levels actually makes perfect sense. So to the extent that U.S. bond yields didn't move as much as a lot of people thought, even though some of the the backdrop did play out. Some of the, the premises, Fed raising rates, GDP growth, fiscal stimulus, those things did happen. And yet the fact that bond yields didn't move when you have a global yield paradigm that was so um, muted and anchored, I don't think that's a big surprise at all. The protectionist issue, another another kind of easy thing to dissect where I think they got it wrong. Politicians always bark on a campaign louder than they bite in office. The The shock to me is not that protectionist fears did not play out. I mean, I'm very grateful they didn't. I think that markets would respond very negatively to some of those things that I freely admit the president threatened to do. But I, I do believe that, um, frankly, the at this point, the markets have been able to rather confidently price in that, that some of the most protectionist concerns from the this White House, this administration, are not very likely to come to fruition. If we were to look to the biggest story of 2017, um, to me, there is no story that more captures what took place uh, and, and what explains the movement higher in risk assets than global earnings growth. Now, there's a lot of things that have to be a part of the conversation about global earnings growth. Um, you know, you, you can look at political dysfunction all, all you want, and there's plenty of it. There's always been plenty of it. This is a, a abnormal. I think this is almost a sociological dysfunction more than political dysfunction. Anyone who thinks that we just have gridlock for the first time doesn't know history very well. But there is plenty that I freely admit is unique about the present political environment. 
But when in the midst of whatever the political uh, landscape looks like, you have global earnings growth like this, the fastest year-over-year earnings uh, movement since 2011, then, then you should not be surprised by risk assets responding accordingly. The, the reality is, is that uh, earnings growth declined from 2014 to 2015. And when that happens, uh, you can expect stock prices to, to run in place, if not to outright decline. So we had a higher volatile period in that two-year kind of pause. Markets never collapsed, but the earnings didn't collapse either. But just the growth of the earnings stalled, and so you had a flat market. No big surprise there. But now you look at the last uh, year and a half, and the acceleration of profit growth has just been incredible. And then, accordingly, stock markets moved higher. They moved higher in the United States. They moved higher overseas, Europe, Asia, and emerging markets. Um, you know, this century, we, we haven't had a single year where every economy in the world was growing simultaneously, was in experiencing positive economic growth until 2017. So you have one of the most robust economic backdrops, um, a lot of accommodation in the monetary system that is coming to fruition in Japan and Europe. And then, and then you have the growing profits, and then you have a kindling, so to speak, around higher business confidence and consumer confidence uh, that stemmed out of a lot, I think, of the, the Trump administration's posture, um, a deregulatory bias, a very business-friendly cabinet, and um, from an actual policy standpoint, very corporate-friendly tax reform. And, and those things obviously got passed into the end of the year. 2017 wasn't just only about uh, advancing stock prices and the advancing earnings that kind of accelerated such. Um, you know, oil prices really did stabilize. I mean, they went past their two-year high, closed the year above $60, uh, about the highest price we've seen in two and a half years. We're nowhere near back to that high of mid-2014, nor are we going back to that point anytime soon. Um, but again, far, far off of that mid-20s level we saw in early 2016. And and a lot less anxiety now in, in the parts of the economy that uh, had questioned around the commodity backdrop. High-yield bond spreads have tightened significantly. Um, and that, and that I think is part of a very strong global demand backdrop. Uh, there, the, the accelerating economic strength, uh, particularly out of China, other parts of Asia, other parts of South America is leading to a very strong demand and that coupled with better supply management out of OPEC and, and more economically rational supply management out of North America and out of Russia led to a, a stabilized oil environment. Big story in 2017. Within the stock market, technology was the big uh, uh, leading performer. Um, I do think that old tech deserves more credit than it gets. People love talking so much about new tech, cloud and social media, and obviously e-commerce. But um, frankly, a lot of the really important old tech companies that provide the kind of infrastructure um, and hardware and, and so forth necessary for new tech to function um, have, have really had extraordinary years as well. Consumer discretionary, financials, materials as sectors were all up in between 22-23%. The only sectors in the market down were telecom and energy, and they were just down very slightly. So risk assets dominated the investing landscape. 
it wasn't a totally perfect script. Normally, risk on, you're going to see higher beta uh, asset classes do better um, than even lower beta risk assets, meaning small cap outperforming large cap, commodities outperforming. Um, but actually, last year, you saw large cap outperform small cap quite substantially. Commodities, uh, you know, didn't post a, a great year. They were up a bit, but not nothing huge. So um, there was a lot that went to, according to script in terms of a risk-on environment, but there were some things that were somewhat unconventional. Uh, the yield curve substantially flattened. Short-term rates did move higher. Long-term rates declined, um, meaning inflation expectations have still not moved a great deal. So the longer duration bonds, the greater price performance, that's not what a lot of people would have been predicting, but it ended up being a healthy year in that regard. Uh, credit performed quite well, high yield particularly, bank loans not quite as well, but when interest rates weren't moving higher, a lot of people don't think they need that floating rate protection, so not a lot of surprise there. Municipal investors, after a just atrocious ending to 2016, saw a great uh, you know, repricing of municipal bonds at the end of, uh, uh, excuse me, at the beginning of 2017 that lasted throughout the year. Um, Unemployment continued to dip lower last year, and as we said, GDP growth kept expanding. So you had this positive economic backdrop. You had, you know, yield curve behaving itself, um, but you would have expected the bond market to perform differently given that backdrop. In other words, the interest rates of the 10-year, 30-year, you would think they would have gone higher given um, this economic strength. There is an inconsistency in capital markets right now. The bond market is not pricing in the inflation that you would think you're going to see, or it's not factoring in or pricing in the growth. And one of the reasons that, that uh, we think it's difficult to trust the bond market's reading is the heavy degree of accommodation that exists from the central banks of the world. You just don't have um, a particularly reliable barometer with so much uh, intervention from the Bank of Japan, the, the Bank of China, the European Central Bank, and even the Federal Reserve. So I, I think that the reality of monetary policy is that we have a very slow pace of, of movement towards normalization um, underway here in the United States. And it's so slow that it's, it's kind of kept us in a hyper-accommodative era. Central bank balance sheets are still extremely high. Um, yes, the U.S. says they want to take some off, but many countries are still expanding theirs. So for us to really say, look, the Fed is actually totally normalizing and tightening, <clears throat> you would think markets would be responding. I think you're going to have to have that in a, in a context of, of global central banks not still maintaining such an excessively accommodative posture. Uh, humility and history both call for the avoidance of wild predictions around central bank possibilities. Um, look, I would not recommend investing around the worst case scenarios. I would be prudent, be cautious. And, and historically, we think we're in a period where the Federal Reserve is going to continue to coddle asset prices in the economy. Um, will they remove that coddling? Well, that's what we're going to have to watch and, and how they go about removing it. So what do we think about the party going into the remainder of, of 2018 to the, the new year? Um, we know how 2017 went. What is the appropriate positioning 
for an investor now? Obviously, the answer to that largely depends on each individual investor's goals and appetite, their tolerance for risk, their tolerance for, for price fluctuation. I want to be very clear on these two things that we want to say because they do not contradict each other. They actually go hand in hand. And if one gets ignored for the sake of the other, it's very likely some significant money will be lost or opportunity missed. The risk of a melt up is real. I mean, markets, no matter what they have done and how shocked you may be about it, they could very well continue in this advancement to a higher magnitude for longer than people think and to a higher level than people think. You could argue 2018's already started off that way. You have equity prices up in between 35 and 4% just in the first couple weeks of 2018. That party has continued. Could a full-blown melt-up, maybe even ending in a blow-off top result? We wouldn't forecast it, but we absolutely wouldn't eliminate it from our calculus. It is uh, very much alive in the landscape of possibilities of how this could play out. But then number two is that this muted downside volatility that we've enjoyed for over a year, if that's the way you think about it, we feel differently. The muted downside volatility that we've had is very likely to go away. Normalcy at some point would resume in equity market fluctuations. Um, to me, uh, this would be a very positive thing. We want um, the, the uh, kind of normalcy of market volatility to resume because we want the normalcy of an equity risk premium to be there. The lower the volatility in markets, the less markets have to compensate you for owning them. This is basic economics. This is investing 101. <clears throat> the market went 239 days last year with less than a 1% move up or down. And, and within that, within a trading day, okay? So out of 251 market trading days, 239 of them, the market was up less than 1% or down less than 1%. Whereas in 2015, okay, not exactly ancient history, there was a greater than 1% move up or down in half of market trading days. 50% of the time we were going up or down more than 1%. Now, that is how severely low volatility was last year because drawdowns were historically non-severe and then even intraday movements were historically insignificant. We don't know when normal volatility might pick back up. We wouldn't dare to answer, but we do believe it will. And so we don't want to be caught off guard by it, be surprised by it, be disappointed by it, be scared by it. We want to be prepared for it and we want to maybe take advantage of it or get a chance. If we were to have another year where stocks are up 20% and we don't even have a single 3% drawdown, um, look, I can assure you that will bring out very euphoric, bad behavior. And that would most likely mean the end of the bull market is near. A good old-fashioned 5% to 10% correction, that would actually demonstrate real normalcy, real health, a functioning market. It would give a chance to investors holding dry powder to put some more capital to work, and it would probably reinforce the idea that the more uh, secular bull market that began in March of 09 is alive and well. Um, now look, are there other potential market disruptors, kind of uh, black swan events lingering out there, things that, that represent what we call tail risk? Um, look, I think China is the most significant one um, that, that lingers. China looks healthy. They've had good industrial production. They've had uh, wonderful... Um, health in the real estate sector. There's a lot of intervention and a lot of monkey business going on that, that you know, kind of 
disrupts and distorts our ability to analyze the data. Um, too many smart people have had their heads handed to them, betting on China's imminent collapse. So we wouldn't want to be excessive in or bold in predicting some negative outlook for China. But we would say that if there were to be a period where global contagion were to kick in and all of a sudden markets were to pause globally, it would very likely be China-driven. That's not something we're predicting, though. So far, they've done an amazing job kind of threading the needle, slowing growth a bit. And our outlook calls for a, a very uh, healthy global market environment in 2018. But we're aware of the fact that there are risks out there, China being one of them. So let me summarize with kind of a, let me close up with a summary of our, our key takeaways from an investment thesis in 2018. Very, very high conviction around what we're calling the year of rotation, predicting a shift in leadership from growth names to value. Um, look, those predicting this have definitely been, been wrong here for several years in a row. Um, although 2016 was a little more favorable to value over growth, more or less, there's been a lot of growth bias in this market rally. Uh, however, from a valuation standpoint, the fundamental strength on the value side, the balance sheets, and the general historical pattern that when people decide they're a little afraid of their growth names and stocks, they usually don't go to cash but move to value. Uh, and I think that's what you're going to see here is just a simple rotation from asset allocators. And, and we think that big value-centric sectors, energy, financials come to mind. They're also big beneficiaries of the policy landscape. We think they're going to be those that benefit. We uh, Number two, we would position a higher weighting into small cap. It's a very simple thesis. And by the way, we don't want to own it through an index. Small and mid cap underperformed large cap last year. But we think they're actually the bigger beneficiary of tax reform. The, the majority of companies that were all really paying the high marginal corporate tax rate that now have this tremendous tax relief, the majority of them were actually small and mid-sized companies, not the big multinational large caps that often had uh, high usage of the loopholes and deductions and things going on anyways. So I think that um, when you go passive in this uh, approach, you end up buying a whole lot of companies that don't have any earnings to begin with. It's, it's very hard for tax reform to help you when you weren't making any money beforehand. The rate can be whatever you want. If you don't have any earnings to pay taxes on, your tax rate is zero. But for companies that are significantly earnings positive and cash flow positive, and this of course requires an active approach to the, one, to the way one invests in it, and then where price valuation is sensible, they're gonna have this big increase in their free cash flow from the instant benefit of tax reform. That tactical upweighting seems prudent to us. I do believe, I've talked about it for some time, that there is likely to be significant movement this year. I don't think the whole story is going to play out this year. I just think it's going to get worse and, and, and will be a heavy source of conversation regarding the kind of changing of the guard in technology as far as their, their uh, relationship with the uh, socio-political environment. They've enjoyed a free ride. They have gotten good press. They, they, they're hip. They're liked by millennials. They're uh, generally highly regarded by the left and the right politically, especially the left. They haven't been persona non grata like the energy sector or the financial sector with higher, uh, the, you know, higher education liberals or with, with uh, uh, what D.C. politicians or think tanks. 
I think that you're going to see more and more public sentiment and, and institutional sentiment, political sentiment, turn against some of the big technology players, whether it be monopoly concerns or security concerns or privacy. Um, these companies have been making just goobs and gogs of money. And uh, generally speaking, a highly covetous society ends up finding something to pick on them for. And I expect that'll be the case here, too. Number four, we want to position uh, a little more realistically around the potential of deflate, uh, excuse me, of inflation, finally kind of taking the headlines away from deflation. It's been a very deflationary environment. It's been uh, disinflation has made the uh, what otherwise could have played into inflation um, the predominant theme since the, the depths of the financial crisis. And, and we're not anticipating a big move up in inflation this year. We're just simply anticipating a narrative that will surface that uh, all of a sudden starts forecasting some unexpected inflation. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, that we're uh, anywhere remotely close to a very robust pro-inflationary environment. I do think that there's a possibility of that. But what I'm more alluding to from a portfolio positioning standpoint is not being invested as if inflation would never surface again. Being invested with the possibility of inflation, but not the assurance of it. Number five, we really want to see bond portfolios positioned to act like bonds. Uh, if we're going to keep a lot of risk on in our equity portfolios, let's take a lot of the excessive risk out of our bond portfolios and invest in bonds that act like bonds. So a little less equity-like bonds, meaning floating rate bank loans and, and spread product, particularly high-yield credit. Um, and, and move just from an asset allocator standpoint into more traditional duration risk. We still wouldn't have very high performance expectations, but we think it's important to, to kind of reframe the risks that are embedded in a portfolio. Let me conclude real quickly by saying bull markets end on euphoria, and one can certainly argue that euphoric conditions increased in 2017 and so far here in early 2018. But the extreme euphoria that's marked the end of most significant bull markets is nowhere to be found. Yet, it's been the most disrespected bull market I've ever observed or studied. Yet, there's no question this is slowly changing. Investors are frustrated by having missed on a 30% plus move in stocks in less than a year. And, and, and now are starting to re-enter that market, attracted to the economic prospects of tax reform. You know, the improved business, consumer confidence... There's a lot of good things that make the market seem investable. It's luring people in. As contrarians, I see a half full and half empty glass in all this. Skepticism is buyable for us. We've done well by investing against the naysayers. But should that sentiment fully shift to a point where the market's no longer met with doubt, but rather complacency, then we will know the paradigm has shifted. In the meantime, we've never had a recession when corporate profits were advancing, and corporate profits are highly likely to continue advancing with the headwind of, excuse me, with the tailwind of corporate tax reform. A standard correction around a market that gets ahead of itself is far different from a recessionary bear market. The former strikes us as possible in late 2018, but the latter does not. Investors ought to learn the messages that Mr. Market taught them in 2017. Maintain fidelity to all the disciplines that successful investors practice, asset allocation, will drive a healthy trade-off in risk and reward. 
Successful investing in 2018 will involve the right response to an inevitable step up in volatility. At the Bonson Group, one of the things I have to do as the chief investment officer is add dividend growth companies whenever value and expected rates of return become more compelling. In other words, 2018 should be like any other year. We celebrate the very opposite of what the general population is celebrating. We worry about the very opposite of that which worries them. So from our vantage point, we want to be adding to dividend growth names, and we want to be um, uh, subtracting when we think too much euphoria is coming back in the system. It's going to be an important year to be a contrarian. We like the position we've laid out here in this summary we do believe that markets are going to see an increase in volatility that's going to scare people unnecessarily. We are ready and embracing that uh, volatility and looking forward to it. But we also want to answer any questions our clients have anytime, what any of this means to them. And most importantly, we want to, on a day-by-day -day basis, be engaged, be totally, completely intellectually connected to what's happening in capital markets, the fluidity of global economies, be prepared to respond quickly, and more important than anything else, manage temperament and emotions so that behaviors do not result in poor investment decision-making. Keep all that in line. 2018 is going to be a good year. Hey, reach out anytime, any questions. It's so fun to do this podcast for you. Thanks for letting me share our advice and insights. This is David Bonson. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to our Advice and Insights podcast with David L. Bonson. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.